Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, it's a mashup show today, and I think I'm really looking forward to it. We're going to be talking to ASPN hosts around the country about what's going on in their neck of the woods these days. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking to Bill O'Byrne. He's a brand new host on ASPN. He's going to have a podcast called The Coastal Conundrum. And uh, Bill is a pro and a 30-year veteran of NOAA. Great guy to have on the podcast. It's a host. Looking forward to talking to him. And we're going to talk to Brian Urestes, a guy who's been on the pod a couple of times. Tyler, I know you've had him on your show, as has Jenna. And he's got a new podcast on ASPN called Shaped by the Sea. And it's a great show, too. So I'm looking forward to this, Tyler. Yeah, Peter, it's always good to uh, do a little around the horn, uh, as we would in baseball, uh, throwing the ball around the bases. And today we're going to be, as you mentioned, checking in with Bill and Brian. But first, we're going to be speaking with Sablone Malaz of Restore and Retreat and Jackie Bear of the Environmental Defense Fund, the co-hosts of the Delta Dispatches podcast, which we are so thrilled to run on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And we will talk all about talk to them all about how life is going in New Orleans on the Louisiana coast, a hot spot of COVID, but also a hot spot in the uh, coastal discussion around the country. But before we get into it, Peter, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at LJA.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the thedunesciencegroup.com. Well, Jacques and Simone, it's great to have you back on. Uh, the Delta Dispatches podcast is one of my favorites. You guys unravel the complicated world of, of coastal Louisiana and the incredible projects that are underway down there from so many different angles. Uh, just start off, Simone, how are you doing and how are things down in New Orleans from your, uh, well, in, in, on the Louisiana coast from your point of view? 
Yeah, well, certainly both Jacques and I are um, both located in New Orleans, and it is a hot spot for, for what's going on in the world right now. But I, I feel like, um, you know, we have things, um, we have great leadership here. People are complying um, to the stay-at-home order. Um, I do miss my Jacques Hébert so, so much um, because I don't get to see him together in the studio. Um, but, you know, our coast is still here and it's something um, that we still would love to talk about and and maybe give people a break from from some of the reality that's going on too. And Jack, how has the uh, COVID uh, outbreak affected your life professionally and personally? How are you doing? Yeah, well, thanks for asking. I mean, certainly, um, you know, we're staying at home, staying safe and at a distance and really thinking about all of the people on the front lines of this, our medical professionals, our nurses and doctors, as well as even, you know, a large part of Louisiana's industry relies on tourism and hospitality. And so we're thinking about the workers there who are impacted by this. So it is really tough, but as Simone said, um, we're really resilient as a, a city and as a state, and we're doing what we can to flatten the curve. Um, I will say if folks want to go to our Restore the Mississippi River Delta Facebook page at Mississippi River Delta, we do have some um, resources that we've pulled together for ways people can help um, support our local restaurants, fishermen, um, and other ways to get involved. I think one good example, the crew of Red Beans uh, is going around and taking donations and they place orders at different uh, local restaurants in New Orleans that they then deliver to hospital workers. So that's just one example of, of a small thing that people are trying to do to help those who are being impacted right now. Simone, you mentioned that, uh, and Jacques alluded to it, that the uh, impact of COVID-19 is already beginning to become clear in the sense that budgets will be impacted. And of course, uh, the work that's slated to be done on the Louisiana shoreline is comes with a big check. Um, what what are you anticipating being, or are you, are you even able to start to anticipate being the uh, budgetary impacts of COVID on uh, Louisiana shoreline restoration projects? It's something it's something that we thought about before this crisis, um, but it is now definitely something that has moved to the forefront. As Jacques mentioned, I mean, we are a working coast. We have a service-based economy, um, and and we also have an oil and gas-based economy, and and those are some of the sectors that are um, most hurting right now. So not just um, the impact to our, our hospitals, but also what's happening in the community beyond that. And I, I do want to echo what Jacques said about how important those frontline workers are, um, but I have a feeling that we're also in this for the long haul and that that will extend out into the community with um you know so many musicians out of gigs and and so many hotels that are closed and you know if people are afraid to travel right so louisiana's economy in general is is based on people and that's one of the things that makes us so amazing um but but Today's um, today's crisis certainly impacts Louisiana's working coast in a big, big way. Um, a lot of our funding um, comes from the state and from di- different federal sources um, that are 
greatly impacted by this. And so we are trying to quickly assess as best as we can um, if this is going to have a real impact on implementing these critical projects that we need um, to help restore and protect Louisiana's coast. Um, it, that's still be determined, but um, we already are expecting some some significant impacts there. Um, but Jacques, again, said it best, and that's why he's my favorite co-host, is um, Louisiana is very resilient. Um, and so I hope that, um, that that is another lesson um, that we've learned in the past that will carry forward with us, especially as, um, ironically, this is the 15th year of, of Hurricane Katrina and Rita. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a fresh lesson for us to remember what it's like to be a resilient uh, economy and people here in Louisiana. Jacques, would you have you guys heard much from CPRA? Of course, uh, for the folks around the country, the Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority is the state agency that manages so much money and investment that uh, is for coastal health, economic and uh, environmental health on the shoreline. Has CPRA said much so far about how their project planning and execution might be impacted? Yeah, well, you know, I think it's really early days um, in terms of any potential impact and to assess really what impact this is going to take over the long run. I think Simone really hit the nail on the head in saying that, you know, it's folks are focused on the public health emergency right now and and what happens beyond that over time. It's hard to say. Um, She also mentioned uh, the anniversary. Well, April 20th will be the 10th year anniversary of the BP oil spill, which is hard to imagine. It's been that long since such a devastating event occurred. Um, And I think the state and a lot of others have been working hard to advance projects um, as a result of uh, the oil spill settlement um, that are restoring our coast and and protecting communities. And so there are a number of projects that have been built in that time. Um, You know, we've, we've featured some of them on our show, the Caminata Headland Restoration Project, Whiskey Island, um, Queen Bess, which is a a critical bird rookery project, um, so many others. And so uh, the funding that is getting that work done on Louisiana's coast um, will continue with or without kind of any potential impact to um, as a result of the coronavirus. Um, There certainly are other funding streams that might be impacted, um, but I think, you know, we'll have to check back in and, and see what those are over the long run. Yeah, and, and if I could just jump in right here too, one of one of the things that we talked about um, here in Louisiana prior um, to our current situation is that um, Louisiana's um, opportunity is um, in restoring our coast is is also a job creator. It is a economy driver. It's something that we could help diversify our portfolio here. And so um, I'm a brag on Jacques' organization a little bit, but EDF already did extensive work about how many jobs these projects could create, not just the communities that they could protect and restore, but how many people we could employ. And now more than ever, that is something that we're talking about, about how many people we could put to work, how many people we could transition into this work. Um, We could help a whole community economically and environmentally. And so thankfully we had done some of that work um, prior and we know that these projects are job creators um, and that money spent on these projects uh, reverberates in the community in terms of, you know, payroll dollars and, and protection to, to critical infrastructure. So thankfully, we had done that work on the front end. 
That's such a good point and a bit ironic that 15 years after uh, Katrina, and I think we're, what, 10 years after the BP spill, that those programs and recovery dollars may play a really critical role in stabilizing the Louisiana coastal economy. Um, Wouldn't that be great if that's how that played out? Um, And there was some good news for Louisiana last week. The uh, Department of the Interior announced the uh, release of the GOMESA funds, the Gulf of Mexico Energy Security Act uh, revenues uh, to the state of Louisiana. This is the offshore oil and gas royalty revenue sharing program, but $124.5 million for the state of Louisiana and sizable checks for all of the parishes along the coast. Um, I'm hoping, Jacques and Simone, uh, that that can help the coastal communities recover. Yeah, I'll I'll start with that one. This is something that um, we've been working on uh, as long as I've been at Restore Retreat is is a share or a fair share of some of these dollars um, off of our coast. And um, we, I know Derek had Senator Mary Landrew on his show previously on his own podcast. Um, but you know, to explain it a little better, um, Louisiana, um, you know, everything that happens offshore has to go through Louisiana to get where it needs to go. And Louisiana fought very hard. Um, back in 2005, six, and seven for our uh, greater share of these revenues. They are constitutionally dedicated um, here in Louisiana to only go to coastal um, projects, which is really important. It has limited uses. And just this year, as announced last week, we got the greatest share available, not just to the state, but as you mentioned, Peter, to vital coastal parishes. So they get two separate shares. And so that is really important to bring cash to our state to implement some of these critical near-term projects. The BP projects that will come online that's spread over 15 years um, in terms of payments. And so GOMESA represents that long-term funding source. That's a vital shot of in cash right away so we can get those projects on the ground. So that will help us to put people to work immediately, especially after this crisis. That's a great point, uh, Simone. And uh, it's just another reminder that uh, how important those those oil and gas lease revenues are now to uh, coastal projects and broader the broader coastal resiliency of certainly Texas, uh, Louisiana, I believe Mississippi mm-hmm. and uh, Alabama are part of it as well. Uh, right, Florida, the Gulf producing uh, states. Right, that's, that's right. right. Very, very good. Look at us go. I know. Um, we listen to our fellow podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Got our Gomisa knowledge on point. But um, uh, Jacques, I wanted to ask you. So one of the one of the uh, uh, I'm going to call it a benefit, although we're deep enough into this quarantine now where we've we've exhausted a lot of our Netflix shows and podcasts and uh you know, we're just consuming our digital content. And I understand that there is some new uh, film material, documentary uh, material ma- that is being made available uh, about the uh, Louisiana shoreline. What what can our listeners go and watch? Absolutely. So this Friday, April 10th, um, 
Smithsonian Channel will release a series of films called Last Call for the Bayou. And these are five individual documentaries that profile different people living on Louisiana's coast and confronting land loss in some way or another. Um, so I had the pleasure to work with uh, Nadia and Dom Gill from Encompass Films on on the kind of the films themselves. And then they were shown at the New Orleans Film Festival and other festivals around the country. Um, they're absolutely beautifully shot. I mean, they feature people like Albertine Kimball, who is a lifelong resident of the East Bank of Plaquemines Parish, where I'm from. Um, and she talks about kind of living in this land of, of beauty and bounty, but it's also being lost in her kind of short lifetime. Um, Dr. Alex Kolker with Tulane University and, and LumCon talks about, you know, advancing projects to keep up with sea level rise. And then, of course, um, you have... Um, other folks like Ben Depp, who Depp, who is a very uh, well-known photographer, who actually got up above the coast in a paraglider, which is, if you imagine, like um, paragliding with a motor on it, um, to, to document land loss and take the most breathtaking photos um, of of the coast uh, from that perspective. So the films will all be available for free starting Friday on Smithsonian channel plus. Um, so you can, you know, go to their, uh, Facebook, their YouTube, Instagram. If you have the Smithsonian app on your TV, they're available there. Um, but then also if you go to the Smithsonian digital, uh, website, they'll be available for streaming. Um, so we're really excited to have these films come out and receive, uh, such widespread national attention, um, to the people on Louisiana's coast and also to the issues that, you know, we work in every day. And, and I think Nadia and Dom did such a beautiful job capturing the beauty of our coast, but also um, the resilience and strength of the people that are dealing with land loss and climate change. Um, well, you know, I'm going to do it, um, Jacques. And I think uh, for the listeners out there, um, y'all did a really great interview with uh, the filmmakers that on, on Delta Dispatches and on Coastal News Today, you can click on uh, Jacques and Simone's name underneath their podcast, and it'll pull up all of their shows and scroll back. I don't know, but it seemed like about a month or so ago that interview was done, and it made me really excited about those films. So how cool to find out that they're available free on Smithsonian One Channel. Um a good suggestion, Tyler. That'll that'll take up a few uh, quiet nights during the COVID. You can go to watch.smithsonianchannel.com um, starting Friday, and they'll all be available for free. And it's great content to to share with your friends and family, kids, while you're you know uh, on the couch and in, in confinement. That's a great point. If I can imagine, if you're doing maybe you're homeschooling science, maybe you're uh, around the American shoreline, you want to take your family on a on a little vacation from the main shoreline all the way over to the Louisiana shoreline, you can tune into these uh, beautifully shot documentaries and get a little flavor. It sounds like that's really cool. Uh, Simone, I, I want to ask you uh, what, tell me what's on tap here for Delta dispatches uh, in the coming, in the coming weeks. I know that obviously the, the, global pandemic has kind of thrown a wrench in things, but uh, are you guys still planning on doing shows and, and what's, what's on tap? 
Well, I'm um, dependent on Jacques um, more than I care to admit, but I'll tell everybody right now that um, I need him and we need to do these shows together because uh, it's helpful for both of us uh, to learn more about different coastal subjects. But uh, most importantly, his friendship's important to me. But we did a great look back. um, And so just want to highlight that, that we talked about educational resources. Um, Our friends at the Restore the Mississippi River Delta Coalition put together a little care package, a coastal care package for folks. And so um, we highlighted those resources, plus a couple of resources of our other friends. Um, But we're also going to be looking um, at our own take on the um, 10th anniversary of Deepwater Horizon in the upcoming weeks. Um, We always love to talk to chefs, and Jacques highlighted that earlier. They have been critical in responding to frontline workers here. And that's just how we roll here in New Orleans, right? Is that the musicians are delivering food from the restaurants to the doctors and nurses working at the hospital. So we would love to highlight some of the good work of chefs who care about our coast, but also about our community. So um, fun days ahead, whether Jacques knows it or not, he's stuck with me for the long haul. I always love y'all's take on restaurants and foods and recipes and on uh, the favorite parades or or uh, during during the Mardi Gras, I love that part. <laughs> it's the most Louisiana thing ever. Just, <laughs> I'm just surprised that Jacques hasn't brought up birds and oysters, his favorite things ever to talk about. And so I can't believe we got through an actual podcast um, uh, segment without Jacques bringing up either one of those. Well, come on, Jacques, give us. A, you know, I've got to think that uh, as things are getting quiet around the country, uh, the birds and the critters are are getting a little bit of breathing space these days. So give us an update on the birds and the, and what, is there any word about how the populations are responding to the fact that there are fewer people outside? Well, I don't know about that, but there, it's certainly uh, spring migration. And so, you know, uh, our good friend, Dr. Eric Johnson with Audubon, Louisiana has hosted a number of webinars um, for people about how they can, you know, experience birding in their from the comfort of their homes while they're in confinement and you know put a bird feeder up and look to their backyard as a way for entertainment and actually it's been getting a lot of really good engagement of course we did a blog recently about the success of the queen bass island restoration project and the fact that now you know thousands of brown pelicans are again returning to nest on that island that was almost completely um you know, gone as a result of subsidence and erosion and the BP oil spill. Um, And so it's just, you know, always a great topic to talk about. Um, But of course, we love talking about food uh, as well. And so Simone's absolutely right. You know, uh, we're going to be here for our restaurants and our restaurant workers and all those who, um, you know, contribute so much to our culture and our economy as soon as this is back. Um, So we we look forward to talking to them and, and keeping you all um, posted on on what makes us love New Orleans and Louisiana so much and why this, this place is so much worth fighting for. So, um, you know, it's tough times right now, but we'll get through this and, um, you know, hopefully we'll be back and, and we'll be there to support each other as we um, get through the months ahead. Mm, sounds really good. And I'm going to just add in, I know this is not nearly as cool as when y'all do it, but uh, fun fact about Louisiana um, I've come up with one <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know if you guys know this and it's not as coastal as I'd like it to be, but the tallest state Capitol building in the United States 
is the cap state capital of Louisiana at 450 feet. I, I did, in fact, know that. And um, fun fact, you could think <laughs> Huey P. Long, and we won't say anything about you know egos or anything like that. But uh, but yeah, you are correct. He was certainly proud of his state and wanted everyone to know it. Who still has the bullet? There's still a bullet in the elevator, right? Yeah, he is mentioned as the person who was, in, of course, empowered. Then the building was inaugurated on May 16th, 1931. So coming up on an anniversary day soon. But yeah, Governor Long, I hear he was a great guy. <laughs> <laughs> Big, personality. Big personality. Big personality. We love our, we love our characters. Yeah. Well, Jacques and Simone, uh, thank you so much for popping in on this uh, little around the horn edition of the American Shoreline podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Thank you very much. So continuing with segment two of our mashup show and talking to podcasts, hosts on the American Shoreline podcast network, I tell you, I'm really excited to introduce one of our newest hosts on the network, Brian Urestes uh, from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Brian is the Community Outreach Manager at the Seacoast Science Center in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, a guy who hails from Long Island, New York, and is going to be uh, releasing a show on ASPN I'm really looking forward to hearing called Shaped by the Sea. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on ASPN and being on the American Shoreline Podcast today. Hey, Peter and Tyler. Thanks for inviting me to be a part of the American Shoreline Podcast Network. I'm, I'm really excited to share Shaped by the Sea with your audience. And um, yeah, I'll be diving into the minds of people who have had their lives shaped by the ocean in one way or another. Um, you know, there's groups of people out there uh, who live their lives completely in tune with the sea. And I want to share their perspectives with everyone else out there. Well, Brian, uh, we're so stoked to have you on board. And, uh, you know, the fact I think we should tar- start quickly and just introduce you to our audience. You're from Long Island. Uh, you come from a fishing background and now you work uh, as a marine mammal uh, rescue volunteer. Uh, you're with the Seaco Science Center. Uh, up in New Hampshire, uh, what? How did what? What path did you take to uh, find your way working in marine conservation? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's a that's a great loaded question. I can definitely pick that apart into a million pieces. But it all started. Um, I grew up on Long Island. Really, uh, I first became connected with the sea by recreationally fishing with my uh, my father, my neighbor, uh, some of my best friends growing up. And that's what first sparked my interest in marine science. You know, I knew I wanted to be a marine scientist. And, you know, as I grew, I got, I got really involved in the surf culture and scene out there. Um, you know, I'm a very avid surfer. I go all year round. Uh, I suit up in my six millimeter wetsuit in the winter and, you know, hit some of the, the nor'easters that produce some really awesome waves up here. And, you know, that just sparked my interest and, and put me on the career path that, you know, I, I ended up pursuing. Uh, I ended up getting my undergrad degree in environmental science at New York University, um, and then followed that up with a master's degree at Stony Brook University out on Long Island. Um, and, you know, I spent some time working as a commercial fisheries observer, working out at sea directly with fishermen who are on the front lines of some of the 
some of these biggest issues like overfishing, climate change, pollution that we see today with our oceans. And, you know, seeing that firsthand really, you know, it it's different than learning about these things in books. And so my experience is working on fishing boats, um, you know, really motivated me to, to stick with the field, keep working uh, in the field of marine conservation. So I wanted to uh, work not, not to better, you know, I think it's very important to better understand the way our oceans are changing, but it's equally important to understand how we as people play into that equation um, and can actually help to conserve the animals and, and you know, ecos- very vulner- vulnerable ecosystems uh, at play here. And so, you know, most recently, uh, this path has taken me up into New England. I've been living up here for, uh, this is going to be my fourth year living up in New England. Uh, I was in Boston for a little bit and just, you know, shot up north to Portsmouth, which is even closer to the ocean. I'm, you know, I couldn't be happier up here. I'm 10 minutes from the sea. Um, and yeah, so right now I'm, I'm working as the Marine Mammal Rescue uh, Community Outreach Manager at the Seacoast Science Center. Um, and primarily what I'm doing is I'm responding to uh, marine mammals. So that's seals, whales, dolphins, and porpoises that end up washing up on the beaches up here. Um, you know, whether they're healthy uh, seals that just need kind of us to to keep an eye over over them and make sure people aren't interacting with them, or if it's an animal that actually is in distress and needs our help and rehab, uh, we end up facilitating that. So it's, it's been an awesome path. And, you know, I've got some really cool stories to share uh, along the way. Well, I'm, you know, shaped by the sea, first of all, love the name of the podcast. Thanks. And I really like the idea that you've come up with. Um, and I want to know more about it. Uh, you said that, you know, that you've met people in your professional career and in, in growing up on Long Island that whose lives and perspective have been shaped by the sea. That immediately gets me interested in what kind of characters you are going to find to talk oh, yes. to. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about, you know, who that might be. What kind of people do you have some folks in mind? Uh, and what what really made you c- come up with the concept of of approaching a podcast this partic- from this particular vantage point? Yeah, absolutely. Those are great questions. So really, I, I came up with this idea because through my professional career and and recreationally as a surfer and fisherman, uh, you meet some of the most interesting people in the world, whether it's surfers, fishermen, scuba divers, people, you know, water folk who are just completely in tune with the sea. Um, they they witness what's happened, the way our world is changing in ways that, you know, scientists can't exactly express. Right. Um, they have they're out there. Fishermen are out there every single day on the water, um, seeing how the fish are moving, how everything's changing year to year. Similarly with surfers, surfers are on the front line of uh, a lot of plastic pollution issues because they're the ones visiting the beach every day, witnessing what's washing in. And what I really what I really want to do is I think that these groups of people, um, there's an opportunity to share this valuable information that they have in their heads with a wider audience. Right. And some another thing that I've come across within my professional uh, career is that scientists and fishermen particularly don't necessarily see eye to eye. There's you know a, a, a very long history of scientists being wary of regulations that are that are produced because of uh, 
fishery scientists, right? And there's this this combative nature between the two, but I really think that by sharing the uh, the perspectives of fishermen and people who have been out there on the water, um, we can get them more involved in the science um, and really, you know, bridge that gap that has existed for so long um, and work together towards sustainable solutions to our ocean's biggest threats, right? And, you know, I, I personally think that uh, by listening to what other people's what other people have to say, we make ourselves wiser. Um, and that's why I want to lay everything out on the deck here. Uh, the perspectives of surfers, fishermen, divers, anyone who would consider themselves of the sea. Um, because these people spend so much time out there and they have such valuable information. Um, and so I want, I want to make the audience think in new ways. And I want to get you know rid of this whole idea that scientists and fishermen and other users of the sea have to be enemies. Um, and you know, really put the saying into perspective that we're all in this together. We're all in the same boat here. Which, which I love, Brian. And I, I know, you know, uh, this is so what we're trying to do, Peter, on uh, ASPN as a whole. Like we're trying to bridge these different communities. And let me just say, you know, a good chunk of our audience are scientists. And uh, some of the stuff, by the time this show comes out, uh, Brian, your first episode with Rocco Costa, your guest, who's a fisherman in Long Island, uh, go back and listen to it if you haven't listened to it yet. Has th- This show is out. Uh, Rocco talks about some skepticism that he has of s- some of the regulations and some what the scientists say. And what we're trying to do is illustrate the... Uh, the Delta there and also show Rocco is an incredibly thoughtful and observant guy. And he is uh, a resource actually. And if, if we can uh, work collaboratively, there's definitely a, a place for this kind of collaboration between the, the fishermen, the users, the recreators or the commercial fishermen, whether you're out on the beach surfing, uh, users of the space have a real world knowledge of the space that is just super valuable for the whole the community as a whole. Exactly. It's it's untapped knowledge. Well, I got to agree with Tyler, and I think I'm really glad that this show is coming on to the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Uh, I think you're right, Tyler, that this is the kind of cross-sectional conversation we're trying to create in the network and why we want the perspectives from so many different angles to be part of the conversation space that we create. And Tyler, I can't tell you, this reminds me of, of the conversations we had at the Social Coast Forum and the sit-down interview we did with the folks from uh, the Mississippi Press Uh those guys, one of the main things they said is we are out in the field and we are meeting the people, the watermen on the Louisiana coast. And part of our mission is to bring those voices into the regulatory arena and where government policies are being shaped. And uh, they also, Brian, in the same way that you have a commitment to the idea that that firsthand knowledge is valuable and needs to be considered. So I think it's, it sounds like a really cool show to me. Yeah, thanks. And one of the other things that I'm also very excited to bring 
to the table are just the stories that some of these people have. You know, uh, if you've ever been around fishermen, you know, over a couple of drinks or just chatting with them, that so, some of them might, some of the stories might be a little exaggerated, but they're definitely pretty entertaining. And you know, I got a couple myself from working out at sea that I'll share. Um, you know, I've seen hammerhead sharks. Uh, you know some ancient looking Atlantic sturgeons that got pulled up stingrays the size of, you know, a small car, basically it's, you see, a you see a lot out there that other people just, it's a world that other people didn't know existed. And, you know, it's, I think connecting, connecting our viewers with that. Um, it just makes you think in new ways. Totally, Brian. And, uh, again, you know, these are, these are folks that spend hours and hours and hours out on the sea. And when you have that, it takes that kind of exposure, that kind of like long uh, time to be out there to uh, just probability wise to be able to have the encounters with wildlife and the experiences that they have. Um, And I do look forward to some good salty sea stories from uh, both commercial and recreational fishermen on your show. But Brian, I do want to turn the subject. I, I, I think we have to talk about it. You're up in uh, coastal New Hampshire, the sea coast, as they call it. And uh, you still have responsibilities, I understand, uh, here in the COVID era, as far as your marine mammal uh, protection work. Walk our audience through what life is like right now here uh, on the uh, New Hampshire shoreline and how your organization is continuing the work. Yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, every every other organization out there is facing, you know, changes that we've never seen before and we have to adapt to it. And so normally the way that we operate is we have a hotline that we run where any beachgoer that that comes across a seal, whale, dolphin or porpoise on the beach, they call us and we head out, we head down to respond. So it's a it's a very um, reactive uh cycle that we work in. And we rely on pu- the public heavily um, to be able to, to provide us with this information of where the animals are and connect us with the, the marine life that we're working to protect. And so now that uh, all the beaches have closed up here and a lot of our volunteers who are, um, you know, there's a lot of retired folk who end up volunteering their time to work with us and respond to these animals. They're uh, a much more at risk uh, part of the population. And so we've had to ask our volunteers to step down. Um, only myself and, uh, my, my coworker and boss, Ashley, uh, the Marine Mammal Rescue uh, Manager over at Seacoast, only the two of us are responding to the animals and we're definitely feeling a little bit more limited out here. And one of the, one of the things that we want the public to know too, is that, you know, we are still working, uh, to make sure that these animals, are protected and that um, they are looked after, but you know we we are limited in terms of our capacity as an organization now, um, just just because of the beach closures. Um, understanding that we have to take certain precautions to keep ourselves and the community safe. So it's it's very interesting times, and you know we we've had to adapt in that way just to to educate the public um, about you know just the changes to our capacity and, you know, uh, making sure that these animals are still getting the care that they, they need if they wash up in bad shape, basically. 
Um, so, you know, very, very interesting times for sure. Uh, a lot of working from home. Um, you know, I've been doing because a big part of my job is community outreach. So uh, educating the public about what to do if they run into a marine mammal on the beach, um, keeping keeping their space is the biggest point that I try and push, uh, stay, making sure that you stay 150. Yep. Can I just ask really quickly, uh, is the beach open? Is it like legally, uh, are you allowed to walk on the beach in New Hampshire? Like what's the, what's the deal? No. So the, uh, all the state beaches, uh, were the first to close actually about, I think it's been a week and a half, two weeks now. And quickly that was followed by the closing of, uh, a lot of the town beaches up here. So pretty much all of New Hampshire's seacoast is closed down. Uh, Massachusetts beaches did a similar thing. They, they shut down a lot of the parking. So a lot of residents, if you live close enough to the beach, you can make it down there. But for the most part right now, I mean, I've, I've driven down the beach. I can't surf. You know, no one's allowed to surf. Um, it's really, there's a lot of people patrolling, actually enforcing this. So it's, it's definitely nothing to mess around with. But um, yeah, everything's shut down pretty much up here. Um, Brian, you had a chance to serve as an observer on these fishing boats. Were you working for NOAA at the time? So I was working for a company that was contracted by NOAA to, to cover uh, the, the fisheries in the Northeast. So I worked on trawl fishing boats, which are, you know, the bottom fishing boats. Uh, and I also worked on gillnet fishing boats down in more North Carolina. Uh, there was there's a bigger fishery of uh, around gillnet fishing down there. It, the reason I'm curious is because when you're serving in that role, you know, either through a contractor or directly as an employee for NOAA, but uh, you're you're in the position of monitoring uh, the activities of these commercial fishermen, making sure that they're operating in compliance with the rules and regs of the government. Uh, and all of those uh, fishing uh, limitations are built, of course, by the fisheries management councils around the American shoreline. Uh, huge uh, process to do that. And I'm just I'm, the reason I'm, I'm ex- I want to explore this with you is is this notion of the wisdom of the waterman kind of idea that's built into your show. Uh, versus the scientific community and bridging that gap. Um, I just think, Tyler, what it reminds me of is Joe Kunkel, uh, you know, Dr. Kunkel from University of Massachusetts Amherst, a lobster scientist who's involved in this kind of issue as a scientist. There are such things as waterman scientists. Um, how, how big is the gap, do you think, between folks who are approaching ocean management issues from a scientific slash regulatory policy standpoint and from the water users, either fishermen, uh, you know, surfers, uh, divers or others. Um, how big of a gap? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it, it depends on where you are. Definitely. If place to place, it varies. And I mean, I would say, I don't think there's that big of a gap, honestly. I think it's just, um, it's it's a little maybe confusion about uh, what people care about, right? So I think what I think you know the fishermen get frustrated about is that they don't think that they're as involved in the science uh, as they could be, whereas what the scientists uh, are frustrated about is that they're not seeing um, compl- full compliance necessarily by uh, some fishermen in in their regulatory realms, and so I wouldn't say. You know, I would say that 
fishermen definitely these guys that spend enough enough time on the water you, they're aware of every you know all the ways that our oceans are changing they're not you know they're not ignorant to uh the fact that you know things efforts need to be made to conserve the fish stocks and and the health of our oceans right um they i think the conflict comes around just when it comes to how do we get that done right and and how are we collecting this data so when you talk when i talk to most fishermen a lot of their problems with the uh fishing regulations come around just how the data was collected and this is like a you know maybe maybe a catch 22 you'd want to call it because when I, when i pose this question to fishermen you know okay you want you want to you want to be more involved with the data collection so how are you going to get more involved with the data collection is my question and that that's usually where we get hung up is you know it's it's an extra effort usually um especially with recreational guys uh that you know that's a question that comes up a lot is how can recreational fishers um contribute their catch data to fisheries managers right and that relies on them being actively involved and seeking involvement in this and so i think that's where the disconnect really lies is you know get it getting these these watermen and these water folk more involved in the, the actual collection of this data whether it's through citizen science or these uh government programs themselves i think that i think that's where we're going to see um a lot you know just the attitudes around between these two groups end up changing they'll buy in because they will have been a part of the process the process yeah exactly exactly ladies and gentlemen it is brian urestes he is the new host of the american shoreline podcast show shaped by the sea uh i'm really looking forward to you continuing this show i loved the first one uh tyler i'm just glad we've got one more perspective and i think a really important one on the network and in this last segment, Tyler, we're going to introduce another new host and new show to the American Shoreline Podcast Network. I'm really jazzed to bring on to the network Bill O'Byrne, who is going to host the Coastal Conundrum Podcast. Uh, Bill is a long time, and I say long time, NOAA employee in the Office of Coastal Management, been around the American Shoreline for decades and is now the principal and owner of O'Byrne and Associates, a good coastal engineering, coastal engineering. No, it's not. It's a coastal consulting firm. So I'm really glad to have Bill O'Byrne joining the American Shoreline Podcast Network, Tyler. So am I, Peter. Uh, Bill obviously brings uh, to the network a deep wealth of knowledge, uh, particularly with regard to how our federal government uh, is managing the shorelines and kind of views the federal role of managing the shorelines around the country. Bill has extensive experience in that. But most importantly, Bill's vibe is very good. He's a great guy to hang out with. I think he's going to run a great show. Bill, it's great to have you on the network. Why don't you start off uh, telling our audience about Coastal Conundrums and what you hope to convey with your new show on ASPN? Well, Tyler and Peter, thanks so much for the, uh, actually, thanks for the opportunity to have a show on the American Shoreline Podcast Network um, and and for the very nice introductory comments, which uh, I may not uh, be uh, the, the appropriate recipient of, but I appreciate them. Um, 
so to get to my show, the coastal conundrum, um, really, I, I want to sh- focus this show on the complexity of managing the America's shoreline and coastal areas in these days, and really, and especially uh, focused on climate in the coast and, and how how difficult how complex, how costly that management is going to be um, now that most people have uh, appreciated the fact that climate change is happening and is affecting our coast as we speak. Um, you know, I don't think that uh, from the what I've seen over my period uh, of time dealing with coastal management, I think the issues are are going are, are a lot of the same issues as far as erosion, um, uh, managing development along the shoreline, uh, but just the intensity and the difficulty now that that climate change is going to add is, is something I think it really needs to be focused on. And, and I think that our coastal areas, um, local governments, state governments, even federal governments are just going to need all the help they can to try to address this. And, and hopefully this show will maybe identify some of those things, at least identify some of the issue areas. Um, another uh, kind of aspect of this show um, is, uh, from my experience, the, the Coastal Zone Management Act uh, was one of the first acts that really tried to look at and um, address what is the appropriate role uh, for local, state, and federal agencies in land use decisions. Um, And that's a really, really tricky issue. Um, And I think that 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 is one issue that that bears uh, looking at constantly, especially as new challenges come up like climate change and and things like that. And then the third area, uh, I have a history background um, uh, and my bachelor's was in history. And so I'm I'm very interested in sort of the the arc of coastal management over time. So uh, maybe looking at, you know, how it's changed, where it may be going, trying to get some people uh, on the show to to help uh, trace out that arc. So that's um, pretty much uh, my show. Really looking forward to that show, Bill. Uh, and you are, you say, a historian, and I know you well enough to know that that is very true. But let's start off with a little bit about your personal history. Uh, how did you come to be a, a coastal lover, as they say? How did you, what was your initial uh, uh confrontation with the coast that sent you on a trajectory to uh, spend a career working on uh, the American shoreline for NOAA? Um, well, Pete, my, my dad was in the Navy, uh, was a naval architect, and um, had spent a lot of time around Virginia Beach. And we used to go to Virginia Beach every year growing up. Uh, so I, I had been around the beach a lot. Um, uh, and my father introduced us to sailing, although he was an awful sailor, uh, and about killed somebody when, uh, one of our sailboats flipped off the top of the car and almost pierced an automobile behind us. But, um, uh, I also had gone to camp where I learned scuba diving and, and sailing, Um, so that really, I mean, I've always been around the coast, so I've always been interested, uh, as far as, uh, kind of environmental, uh, kind of side of things. Uh, uh, when I wasn't in the coast in the summers, I was down at my grandparents' farm and got a real love of the outdoors and had a, an experience that, um, this was down in just outside of Atlanta and, uh, 
well, and I'm not going to tell you what decade, but uh, Bell South was coming in and, and developing a piece of property. And there was, uh, it had been a place that uh, my friends and I had always kind of uh, gone to. There was this uh, bunch of old, uh, cool um, uh, ruins of old houses and buildings. There had been uh, apparently some gambling uh, uh goings on back there. There was all sorts of stories that were associated with this. It even had like an, one of the old houses had an in, um, in ground pool that had been built out of stone. And, uh, anyways, uh, one day we woke up and they had basically come in and plowed the entire area, um, cut down all the trees and put up this bell South building. And, and that kind of sparked an interest in me of like, Whoa, where's the fine line between, completely raising, you know, um, everything in nature versus, you know, progress and, and development and things like that. So that, that was two of the things that kind of launched me on my career. Woo. Now I would say that the f- fact that the sailboat blew off the top of your dad's car and hit, hit almost <laughs> <laughs> killed the people behind you does not make him a bad sailor. Yeah. It makes him a bad, no, a bad he, loader. He, of, he was, of, of, <laughs> well, he, in all things tying <laughs> knots, he was not good. Okay. <laughs> so that, no, no he, he was just, not, <laughs> yeah, no, it, he was, it's uh, happened to me with a surfboard once. I can tell you, it's a tricky thing to bolt a large uh, wing to the top of a vehicle and uh, keep it there when you're driving yeah. at 65 miles an hour. <laughs> yes. Well, it, it did Bill, perform uh, like an aeroport. Yes, it does indeed. Um, uh, coastal conundrum. I okay. So this is what I gathered from your three part. By the way, very good overview of of your show. Uh, climate change and the difficult issues ahead. Uh, subject area one. Subject area two. The role of the local, state, and feds in coastal management. Um, the intricate interplay of government authority and power and oversight. Uh, and the third topic. Um, the arc of coastal management over time. I'm telling you, I, I mean, that sounds cool to me. Um, and I think, I don't know if this is a fair characterization of your show, Bill, but uh, it sounds like the coastal managers show. Uh, the folks who actually are involved in the policy and the implementation of policies uh, to balance the competing needs along the American shoreline. Um, I that is that is kind of the crux of the whole thing is how do you balance all of this stuff am i is that a fair understanding of what you want to do and i don't right. want to uh, pigeonhole your show or narrow it but um no i think that's a that's a fair uh, i mean i would add that that there is a there is a big science uh, component and NOAA is a science agency and and i think that's one of the things that um has at least the office that I had worked with became more and more involved with was trying to provide uh, a lot of the data tools and, and, and trainings um, to managers so that they could create better policy and make better decisions. So, uh, but yeah, I, th- I think that there's a, 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 I mean, my history has been looking at the, the policy side um, a great deal, but you know, there's yeah. lots of things that go into that policy. You know, that piece. Yep. And so, look, you guys, for the listeners out there, full disclosure, Bill and I have known each other since the 90s uh, when I was at the Texas Coastal Management Program, and we were going through the process to get that program approved by the federal government. Uh, Bill was the representative from NOAA, the federal agency that oversees the process of bringing new state coastal programs into the federally approved program. 
so Bill and I worked together back then on project uh, in the development of the program. Uh, but Bill, you're, you've got to share a little bit of your history with Noah because uh, uh, sure. having just left the agency, what, 30 years? I mean, you were on the front mm-hmm. lines of policy and coastal management from the beginning of the Really, from the very beginning of coastal management in the United States. Come on, t- Ooh, tell your tell our audience. Not quite the very pretty beginning. Pretty close. Pretty close. Uh, give me twenty years. <laughs> so yeah, because you know I was going to make a joke. Like so, Bill. <laughs> uh, Noah, Noah's turned fifty. Tell me what it was like back in the seventies. <laughs> yeah, well, I, uh, I think I was paying more attention to music than coastal management in the seventies, to be honest with you. But. Uh, but one thing, oh, so I, I will say that that with with my interest in the coast, and then um, after getting out of college with a, the history degree and kind of fumbling around a little bit, um, I had thought maybe I'd go for a legal career, um, and I was working in a couple of law offices. I, I worked as a volunteer with an environmental um, uh, law firm, uh, doing some work with nuclear power plants in Georgia. And realized that that the law wasn't for me. Um, I, I was a little bit more in. Uh, well, I, I had worked on one case uh, in the the law firm that I worked with that had been going on for nine years, and um, was w- watching a couple of people that had spent their entire career <laughs> working on that. And it was like, wow, I really don't know if I want to do that for uh, on a single case for nine years. Uh, but also wanted to get more into the proactive side of things that, that, you know, I see the law is very important, but it's very reactive in sometimes, and sometimes it doesn't, uh, you know, it's, it's a win-lose instead of possibly looking for win-win situations. Um, not all the time, but some, but a lot of the time. Um, and so I had had some friends in planning school, uh, and they said, oh yeah, you ought to check out some of the planning, uh, programs. So I got in, into, uh, an urban environmental planning program at the university of Virginia. And, uh, one of the main people there, uh, there, they had really had a coastal focus. They had come out of the UNC program with, uh, uh, a number of the, the, uh, planners that had worked on the North Carolina coastal management program. And, uh, so I got very interested in that. Uh, and, uh, from those relationships and, and, and folks, uh, I ended up, uh, uh, going up and talking to Noah, some, a couple of people at Noah, uh, and just so happened that there were some jobs coming out at the time. And, and that's how I ended up getting into Noah. Um, uh, Bill, time, was that 1870 or 19? 19- <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you got to yeah, give us the starting year. Like what so the year starting year was 1988. So I don't go quite as far back as you think I do. Um, and uh, at that time, it was the NOAA's Office for Ocean and Coastal Resource Management. Um, and uh, and at that time, it was a uh, uh, basically an an office uh, within NOAA, um, and uh, one of the uh, it was a, a an office within one of the five um, uh, services. Uh, it was in the National Ocean Service, but was an office within that service. Um, and so, uh, so is that is that kind of getting you where you wanted to go, Pete? As far as answering yeah, that question, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, back at the the Coastal Zone Management Act was passed in nineteen seventy two. What was it? Six two, two. nineteen seventy two. Um, 
so we're, you come into NOAA in 1988. Uh, there are a number of states with approved coastal management plans at that time. I would say mm-hmm. most of them, I think, in fact, um, I think and a few were, outliers. Yeah, I think there were 28 or 29 when I started. And okay. and there was a number of outliers. Uh, let's see, Georgia, Indiana, um, Texas, uh, Ohio, and a couple of others that I or that are escaping me right now. Okay, um, so for all you coastal lovers out there, those Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Great Lake coastal states, so they are part of the National Coastal Management Program system. Yes. Um, but really, the the program was just getting, you know, had been in effect for a decade or so. Uh, the relationship between the feds and the states when it comes to coastal management and setting of policy uh, was still kind of in its infancy, infancy, mm-hmm. and, and and well, what? Tell yeah. us, you know, well, how far I, along I, was it? Like, it had it had undergone some big changes, actually. So, so just the real quick history. Out of uh, there was a commission established in 1969 called the Stratton Commission. They came out with a report uh, that was really looking at um, uh, what do we need to do to better manage ocean and coastal areas. Um, and as a result of that, uh, NOAA was created and a number of um, kind of acts with regard to the coast, the Coastal Zone Management Act, the National Marine um, uh, Sanctuary uh, Act was passed, as well as the Marine Mammal Protection Act um, and some others. And th- that those all came out in 72 with all the other major environmental legislation like the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act under the most environmental president ever, Richard M. Nixon. Um, and, uh, but, but the Coastal Zone Management Act had actually come out of uh, a national land use law that Henry Scoop Jackson, Jackson had, um, had been promoting. Uh, so there, there was this whole idea of, of having some kind of national land use program where the feds would give states money to develop statewide land use plans and um, had very similar components to what's in the Coastal Zone Management Act. Uh, that did not pass. It was just too much um, uh, for the states to take. And, and from what I've heard, the, the Coastal Zone Management Act really became kind of a, a test case for that to see if that something like that could work, in which case they might revisit the National Land Use Act. Wow. See, I think that I think that we really can understand here just a walk down memory lane uh, with Henry Martin Scoop Jackson, of course, the uh, senator from the state of Washington uh, and an anti-communist Democrat. What I'll tell you, Bill, this is the level of detail that we can look forward to. And I have been begging for a history of Noah show. Uh, which I hope maybe we do a series because I see there's a lot there to unpack. Uh, there's, a, there's, there's a, a ton. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that, I mean, Noah is such a, a, a big agency. I mean, we're one of five or we were one of five uh, services. You know, there's the National Marine Fisheries Service, the National Ocean Service, the National Weather Service, uh, the NESDIS, which is the National Environmental and Information Data service uh and what am i forgetting oh the office of oceanic and atmospheric research so there is a ton um and and i think that there would be some great you know people to get on and and interview about some of the other parts of that but i would love to you know uh 
try to do a little bit of that, at least around the coastal. Noah's 50 this year. Uh, <clears throat> there's so much to be learned, actually, from this history of, of how uh, things have, have changed, policies have, have come up, departments have been swallowed up or split apart and moved around and all of this stuff, uh, albeit a little wonky, definitely gets into the, but it's important history. And Bill, you do a really great job of telling the story and you know the story, which is important. Um, but you also have some thoughts about looking forward. And uh, you mentioned that your show is going to talk about uh, how communities are preparing for uh, this kind of increasingly uh, realization that climate change is real and that sea levels are rising and that coastal communities will need to take adaptive measures. And uh, what tell, tell us a little bit about what you are hoping to explore there in particular. Um, you know, I think that, um, just the, the, how much this is going to challenge and, um, the, the existing mechanisms and programs that we have in place to really try and, and deal with managing the coast in an era that um, there's going to be a lot more discussion about coastal retreat and and issues that are um, have have always been sort of on the table, but in 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 a much broader context, much broader geographic context, um, a much broader uh, kind of institutional context, and that are going to be challenging from uh, uh, policy. Um, monetary, fiscal, um, as well as legal uh, perspectives. Um, and, and I think those are some of the things that um, I'm really interested in is uh, I, I still do uh, have a, a fond in, interest in, in legal issues and I, because I think, well, they are important and, and they have always been very important to coastal management. Um, uh, I mean, coastal management, one of the great balancing acts is, you know, how do you, um, uh, try to promote public good and, and, and preserve private property interests. Um, and, and that is a really, uh, delicate and fine line job that, that our, programs and, and people everywhere are trying to, to deal with. And uh, we had done a little work and just to look at um, some of the strategies that uh, were being talked about as far as how do you adapt to climate change and, and um, uh, sea level rise, issues like that. And, and what, are, what types of strategies can you take? And then looking at those strategies, how do those intersect with the legal um, landscape that that we're operating under, which is legal landscapes at the local, state, and federal level, and and some of the stuff that we had, it's 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 exceedingly complex and it's exceedingly uh, uh, like it, it, the best example that I can I can remember is like trying to untangle my fishing line when I screw up um, and don't cast well. Uh, it's, it's a chore <laughs> that sometimes that's what it looks like. Uh, so anyways, I, 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 is that, uh, right. uh, I mean, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, there's, 
there there are well part of the reason I wanted to focus on this is that I think there's been certainly over over the last decade or so there's been a lot of reluctance to talk about climate change in in some arenas uh, I think uh, that now I, I am really hoping that people see that that it's a real thing. It's happening. It's happening uh, in Miami. It's happening uh, in the Mid Atlantic. It's happening in the Northeast. It's happening in the Gulf, uh, and and it is becoming uh, so real that we need to deal with this and, and deal with it in, in a fairly kind of rapid way. And so maybe this, uh, hopefully, this show will yeah. will help you know, move that dialogue along. Bill, I like the description you gave at the in your introduction about this issue of climate change and uh, policies along the coast. You said it's you're expecting there to be an intensification of the issue. And I think that's really quite accurate. Uh, you know, we can look at Walton County, Florida, where there's beach access fights going on with the Upland private property owners, including Mike Huckabee, the former candidate for president who has led an effort to assert private property exclusive rights along the shoreline. And, uh, you know, the sheriff gets called when you're in the beach on the beach in front of Mike Huckabee's house. Um, that issue is, is a big deal in a lot of coastal States and the interplay of, uh, of climate change and rising seas, which, uh, cover the beach and push people higher up onto the beach into private property rights is the kind of complex issue it sounds like you're going to cover. Uh, I want to talk about your audience a little bit and make a pitch because uh, for listeners out there, you think, "Oh, well, okay, it's a government policy show. It's it's not mm -hmm. going to be that narrow." And if I'm a if I'm a builder, if I'm a in the real estate business, or I'm in coastal energy, uh, or in waterways and shipping, uh, trying to understand how the decisions are made, what the policy balances are. Um, within the government sector, public, as you said, federal, state, and local, um, you know, it's important to get a peek inside that tent and to be able to hear from the folks who used to build these programs and implement these policies. Uh, so when it comes up in your life and in your community uh, as, a, as a real estate person or an energy person or a beach advocate or a beach access, you know, beach lover, uh, you're like, where the hell did did that come from? Well, listen to Bill's show. You're going to get an insight into how these issues are actually shaped in the in the public policy arena. Right. So I don't know. I that's the kind of that's the kind of shit I like to think about. And so yeah, and, and, and I hope this, this I hope this stuff is not going to just bore the hell out of everybody. <laughs> I, I, no, and I, I've got some. I, there's some ideas of of talking to people uh, from the folks that have put together the national climate assessment, um, which is kind of a wonky, wonky thing, but very important, a very, uh, probably the best document right now to look at the impacts and, and, and some of the things we can do about uh, climate change and sea level rise um, to looking at uh, maybe looking at some of the authors and talking to some authors that have written books on sea level rise. There's one in particular rising that I'm um, hoping to, to, to try to get a, an interview with uh, the author. Uh, so I think it's going to be on a number of different aspects and, and hopefully it will be enough to entertain and, and engage people. Oh, and the one thing I forgot is at the end of each show, I'm going to try to have like a coastal song. And so not me, but I'm going to introduce good <laughs> coastal music to the... <laughs> 
<laughs> so uh, I, I'm still, I have to talk to you about the copyright issue and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, well, no, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, well, the music part. So what you guys need to know about Bill O'Byrne is he's, he's been in bands mm-hmm. since the seventies. He's, he's a musician. Uh, when we were at, <laughs> no, he's not. But when we were at Tyler, where were we? Social we were coast. at, uh, the social was coast. It? Social coast for a, Bill had his mandolin, played a bunch of music. I said, Bill, you know, compose some music for your show. Bring on some people who play music, have a musical interlude. I think, I, I hope you do that. I hope you bring your personality and your creativity to this. And and, and I know it's policy, but sure. have some fun well, with it Well, there's, uh, I just have to find the people that, that haven't heard me play that long and, and will will play with me. So that, that'll be good. <laughs> Otherwise, if, if I were that good, I would not be sitting here doing a podcast. No, no. Um, <laughs> I'm just oh, kidding. I'm for, just... <laughs> for your last option. You're not... <laughs> That's right. We'll take it. One final thing that I'd like to um, point out, uh, Tyler, is, um, you know, some of the the ideas uh, about that, that were incorporated into the Coastal Zone Management Act, which I, I think are really kind of, were at the time really groundbreaking. And I still think it's one of the most unusual programs um, in the federal government. Um, And some of those um, ideas that were kind of included in there is that, I mean, this was a voluntary program as opposed to a, you know, an EPA regulatory program. It was based on incentives. It, uh, it really uh, promoted a partnership between the federal um, government and the state uh, and territorial governments. Um, It was really trying to look at issues in, in the most comprehensive way, not only um, kind of as all those issues along the coast needed to be kind of thought about as you're forming policies, but also, you know, comprehensive in a sense of trying to align policy from local, state, federal, um, you know, really trying to balance um, uh, environmental protection, economic uh, uh, development, uh, and more recently, you know, kind of social um, development. the, the, the kind of social side getting to the kind of triple bottom line now, um, but also uh, provided a tremendous amount of flexibility uh, to states and territories to develop programs, but but really focused on programs as opposed to plans. We, and by that, I mean, you know, there were some enforceability requirements as far as also making sure that, that, that states and territories had programs that actually had resources to implement them. Um, and, and so some of those uh, concepts, I think, are, are, are something that I'd like to get into and, and look at um, in this podcast. Well, it sounds great to me, Bill. So ladies and gentlemen, it is Bill O'Byrne, historian musician, longtime professional at the Office of Coastal Management of NOAA, and now the host of the Coastal Conundrum podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, one of the great shows you can get by subscribing to Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Bill, thanks for joining the network, and we look forward to your show. Well, thanks for having me, Pete and Tyler, and uh, it's, I'm looking forward to uh, having a great association with you guys. And again, we just want to thank Jacques Ibert and Simone Malaz with the Delta Dispatches podcast, which we are proud to distribute on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And Brian Urisitz, brand new to the network, one show out by now. Uh, if you haven't listened to it already, check out Shaped by the Sea, came out on Friday. Uh, Brian, thank you to you, Jacques and Simone, and of course, Bill. 
have a good one.